Our reading today is from Ephesians chapter 5. Look carefully, then, how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time, because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is. And do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in palms and hymn in spiritual songs, singing and making melody to the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything to God the Father in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Wives, submit to your own husbands as to the Lord, for the husbands is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body and is himself its savior. Now as the church submits to Christ, so also wives should submit in everything to their husbands. Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of the water with the word, so that he might present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that she might be holy and without blemish. In the same ways, husbands should love their wives as their own bodies. He who loves his wife loves himself, for no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church, because we are members of his body. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. However, let each one of you love his wife as himself, and let the wife see that she respects her husband. This is the word of the Lord. Thank you, Michelle. I really appreciate you doing that for us. We're nearing the end of our sort of helicopter view of Ephesians, this magnificent letter, and it's really one of my favorites, written to tell us how the church fits into God's plan for the world. And it's significant that in the midst of this letter, where Paul is telling us how the church fits into God's big plan for the world, that he gives in this letter the single greatest treatment found in the Bible about how a husband and a wife are to relate to one another. It's as if there's a connection that a very important part of what God is doing in the world is creating an environment where husbands and wives treat one another with love and respect. But let's take a minute and take, uh, move back from this picture and, and look at the whole story one more time before we come into that. As I said, this is a magnificent letter telling us how the church fits into God's plan for the whole, whole world. We have seen that Jesus didn't die only to save individuals. He died to create a new community and that this is the heart of God's plan for the universe. We have seen that Jesus died to create a people who are called to faith in him, gathered as a community of love, and sent with hope for the world. That's why we call ourselves Ecclesia, a community of love and faith. And hope. We recognize that we don't initiate this relationship with God. God initiates it with us. He calls us to faith in Him. He gathers us as a community in love, and He sends us with a message of hope for the world. 
We have seen that as a people of hope, we are called to be living witnesses of God's new creation in Christ Jesus. That is, we are to be, as it were, a colony of heaven in the middle of earth. Kind of like in, in, in communities such as San Francisco and Los Angeles, you often find ethnic groups who create a colony from their own country there within that country. In a lot of ways, we are called to be a colony of heaven here in this earth, called to bring the good news, to be ambassadors for the good news of God's way of living, of God's way of making us new humanity, fully alive in Him, here in the middle of this earth, what the Bible calls a crooked and depraved generation. We have seen that we are a colony of heaven in the middle of earth, and that this does not make us disengage, but rather vitally engage with the world to embody the message of the gospel just as Jesus embodied the nature of God here in human flesh. When we speak about the incarnation, another way of saying the incarnation is the embodiment of God. When we worship Jesus, we worship the embodiment of God. So we are called to be like Jesus was to the world, to love like Jesus loved, to serve like Jesus served, to forgive like Jesus forgave, to accept as Jesus accepted, to lay down our lives just as Jesus laid down his life for us. For we have come to realize that Jesus was the most fully alive human being who ever lived. It's so important to understand this. We tend to be so concerned to prove the deity of Jesus Christ that we diminish his humanity. And we become like first century Gnostics when we do that. We should not do that. We're not Platonic Christians. We're Hebraic, Judeo-Hebraic Christians who believe in the embodiment of what God has created and that Jesus was the embodiment of God in the flesh. So he was more fully alive, more a full, well-rounded human being. He, uh, he, he lived life better than anyone else ever lived it. Not just as God pretending to be human, but as a human with the nature of God resident within him. He was both God and man. And so we believe that when we place our faith in him, we too are made fully alive. But God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive in Christ, even when we were dead in our transgressions and sins. We learn that in Ephesians chapter, uh, chapter 2. We become, in the words of Irenaeus, the second century apologist for the church, the glory of God is man fully alive. We are more loving, more hopeful, more joyful, more alive, more fully human. We, we experience the joys of humanity, the passions of humanity, the beauty of humanity, all these things. We're not meant to be uh, so, of so heavenly minded that we're of no earthly good. No, we're to engage this world with the love and mercy and joy of Jesus Christ. It is a blessed and beautiful vision. It gives me encouragement. It gives meaning to everything that we do, and it brings hope to the world. And where is it, we might ask, where is it that this vision is most fully realized? Where is the place where we will be, which will be most like heaven in the real world? Will it be in the marketplace, the place of buying and selling? Is that to be our focus? Is our job to try to fix the marketplace and, and, and put all our energy in having the marketplace be the right kind of place? No, it won't be there. Will it be in the public square, the place of political exchange, where in an election season, is that where the focus of Christian energy is meant to be? Is that where all of our marbles are placed to get the, uh, get the government, the right kind of government, doing the right kinds of things? No, these are important, of course, but that's not this central place. Will it be in the neighborhoods where people live in proximity to one another? Well, we're getting closer to the truth there. 
Will it be even in the church, the local gathering of believers? Well, yes, we're very close. But according to the Apostle Paul, the single most important place for the kingdom of God to come is in your home address, right where you live, with your husband, with your wife, with your children, with your parents, and with your brothers, and with your sisters. The focus of what God is doing, according to what Paul is teaching here when he really gets down to the end of his book and he's nearing the finish line here. The last thing he really talks, the last admonitions he really gives relate to the home. They relate to the family. And if it's understood, I believe correctly, this chapter, this passage that, uh, that Michelle read for us and the ones which follow it, which speak about the relationship between fathers and uh, between parents and children, and then also between masters and slaves, understood correctly, all three of those arena. The husband and the wife, the parents and the children, the masters and the slave, all those arena fundamentally, first of all, are there within the home because masters and slaves live together in the same home. They were, in a general way, part of the same family. So when the Apostle Paul, after talking about the importance of unity in the church and maturity in the church and purity in the church, he begins and closes his argument by saying, and make sure it happens between the husbands and wives, between parents and children, between masters and slaves. And then he says in the last section of that we'll look at later, not today, but later, is you're in a spiritual battle. And if any of you have been married for more than a day, you know what I'm talking about. It, it's, a, it's not just a physical battle, although sometimes that can happen. There are spiritual forces of wickedness trying to break up you and your husband, you and your wife, you and your children, you and your parents, you and your brothers and sisters, you and your neighborhood, you and your church, all, all the way through to break up this great vision that God has created. So we need to take a look carefully, and especially in the marriage relationship, which is what I'm going to look at here specifically today in this text, we may or may not have a chance to look at the parent-child relationship and the master-servant relationship, um, um, although there's some important principles in there as well. What I want to share with you today, very simply and straightforward today, I want to talk to you about the importance of marriage, the mystery of marriage, and the art of marriage. Marriage is important. Marriage is a mystery. We know that, right? And marriage is an art. It's not just a science. Let's consider these three things together as we see them in this text. First of all, the importance of marriage. I want you to see that marriage is a divine calling. Not every one of us is married, but perhaps every one of us may be married at some point uh, in the future, very likely so. Marriage is a divine calling. It's important really important. We see it in this text um, so clearly. I want you to understand something today that is important for you to just think about. Probably the most important thing you will ever do in your life is build a family. That will probably be the most important. It'll be better than, more important than any book you ever write, any building you ever build, any money you ever make, any degrees you ever get. It will be ultimately Wow, what a good-looking family that is. <laughs> it will be the most important thing you ever do. A lot of you are young in your family life, and I just hope you never forget this. I know your career matters. I know the things you want to accomplish matter. These are all important. But at the end of your life, what will matter to you is not your career, not your accomplishments, not your things you own, not the 
the letters behind your name, none of those things. What will matter to you is your family. Um, the most important thing you will ever do is build a family. The most important people you will ever influence in your life, your family. The most important way God will work through you in your life is likely through your family. And it's probably true that the greatest evidence that you belong to Jesus is found in your family. Or perhaps the greatest question mark about how well you belong to Jesus is how it works out in your family. If God has given you a husband or a wife, thank God for that. It is a divine calling. You know, in 1943, Dick Scudder had a little girl, and she was three years old, and he realized that she was developing symptoms of asthma. And uh, he already had two other girls much older than him, 16 and 17 years old when she was born. And so this was the daughter of their aged time, you know, born when he was 42 and his wife was 39, you know. And they lived in Michigan. And his wife had struggled with asthma for a long time. And so he decided, and according to his wife, Ruth, he made the only real decision he ever really made as a man. <laughs> you know how it is. He decided that they would move to Arizona in 1943, which was a lot different place than it is today. And so they moved to Arizona, Dick and Ruth and their three-year-old daughter, Joy, my mom. If that had not happened, we would not be having this conversation today. You see, so much of what we do influences far beyond us. So my mom grew up in Arizona in 1955 or 56. She went to a roller skating rink on a blind date and, and met my dad who was in the service, and they had a relationship. They got married in 1959. I was born in 1960, and here I am today. Dick Scudder has had no idea in 1943 that probably the, the, the most important decision that he might ever make would be to move to Arizona. It changed the course of not just his life, but other lives. It was a family decision made. That's just a very small, maybe it was a bad decision, <laughs> you know? And God uses our bad decisions as well. The point I'm saying is that 40, 50, 60, 80 years from now, the paycheck you make is not going to make, made is not going to make a big difference. But the children you bore, the family life you lived, that will be your legacy. Treat it with the value that it deserves. Okay. The importance of marriage. Marriage is a divine calling. The mystery of marriage. Oh, my goodness. I'm going to have to really hurry. The mystery of marriage. Marriage is a holy mystery. This is a, a, a beautiful setting here. It says, Verse 31, therefore a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. This mystery is profound. And I'm saying that it refers to Christ and the church. I don't even know how to talk about this. But somehow, the marital relationship is only a picture, a shadow of a larger relationship that exists between Christ and His church. 
all the way through this text, as he talks about men in particular, we, we find him going back and forth between talking about the man and then talking about Jesus, talking about the church and talking about the woman. It's all the way through here. L- listen to it with that in mind. Um, verse 23, for the husband is the head of the wife, even as Christ is the head of the church, his body, and is himself its Savior. Now, as the church submits to Christ, so should wives submit to their husbands. See the emphasis on the church? Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself up for her, that he might sanctify her, having cleansed her by the washing of water and the word, so he might present the church to himself in its splendor without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, that, it might, that she might be holy without blemish. He spends much more talking about Jesus than he does talking about the husband. It's as if, even you see this, if I were to describe this photograph to you that it includes me and my two boys and my wife and my daughter and her new husband, and you begin to look at that, and if you were to begin to assume that that's the real me, that's the real them, you'd be mistaken, wouldn't you? You know it's just a representation. You know it's an image of a larger reality, that there is a real guy, and he's standing here. He's not up there on the picture, you see? When the Apostle Paul talks of marriage, he says, this is the marriage, but it's a picture of something bigger. That is, and that's why he calls it a profound mystery, or other versions, a great mystery. When you got married, it was a holy mystery. You've been to weddings too, haven't you? When my daughter got married, think about the weddings. There's just something poignant about that moment. Am I right about that? You can remember it, hopefully. When you got married, when you've been to a wedding, it, and it's not just about two people who love each other, and isn't this great? There's something deep and that touches us at a deepest part of ourselves. That's why we cry sometimes. That's why we don't know what to say. That's, we, we can't even give it expression. The Bible is saying that that part of it is an indication that there's even a deeper reality of Christ's love for the church, Christ giving himself for the church, that when you said to your wife, I do promise before God and these witnesses to be your loving and faithful husband for better, for worse, for rich, for poor, in sickness and health, as long as we both shall live. When you said those words, you were repeating something like what Jesus did for you when Jesus gave his life for you. It's a profound mystery. It's a profound mystery. All the way through this text, it's all about Jesus. Verse 22, as to the Lord. Verse 23, as Christ is the head. Verse 24, as the church submits to Christ. Verses 25 to 27, as Christ loved the church. Verses 29 and 30, as Christ does the church. Verse 32, one flesh, your one flesh. This mystery is profound, and I am referring to Christ and the church. It, it confuses me. Wait a minute, you just spoke about a man leaving his father and mother and cleaving to his wife and those becoming one flesh, and then you say that's really an image of a deeper reality about Christ's commitment to the church? I don't get that, Paul. Yeah, he says, it's a profound mystery. You see, this is why you're so confused often in your marriage, because you're involved in something very deep, very deep. It's a profound mystery. You can't fully fathom it. It's a beautiful thing that you've been given this opportunity to share in this life with another person and perhaps through that life to create 
new life. It's a profound, profound mystery. So refuse the flippant attitudes you see around you with regard to marriage and sexuality and relationships and all that sort of thing. Oh, get deeper than that. See how deeply profound it is. Number three, the art of marriage. The art of marriage. Marriage is a sacred dance. Marriage is a sacred dance. I put an image here, kind of an embarrassing image, and Kurt's going to put it up there for you, the next one. And it's the image that comes from my daughter's wedding. And, and there's me dancing with my daughter. I have danced in public twice in my life. That was the second time. The first time was when she was in fourth grade, and she went to under a school dance. And believe it or not, it was a cowboy dance. I wore a hat. And, you know, it was the first time. I just grew up in a culture where it wasn't like dancing was evil. It just, we didn't do it, right? Maybe it was evil. We just didn't do it. So this is a tremendous fear for me, you know, tremendous fear for me. But my daughter in fourth grade wanted to go, and so what do you do? You go, you know, you do. And so what I do when I'm not sure what to do is I just act stupid, right? So I'm just being stupid. And wouldn't you know it, on the following Wednesday, when I go to our weekly newspaper, on the front page, on the very front page in the corner is a picture of me dancing with my daughter with a cowboy hat on. I'm in fourth grade, you know. It was embarrassing to me. Uh, Okay, I have a lot to say and only about four minutes to say it. These, um, Jesus is giving you the moves you need to practice, husbands and wives. The reason this dancing is so hard for me is I don't know the steps. I don't know what to do. I don't know where to put my feet. I don't know any of that. So I don't even know. I remember it was embarrassing. I go to my daughter. I don't even know exactly what. That's how clueless I am about this sort of thing. It's terrible. You think I'd have practiced ahead of time, but I didn't. And, uh, I don't mean to embarrass myself any more than I have to, but you see, the thing that I really want to say is that when we talk about the husband's responsibilities and the wife's responsibilities, these are like the steps in a relationship. Now, if you think about it, one of the, movie, one of the shows I kind of enjoy today is called So You Think You Can Dance. I, I, I hate to admit it, because it's not, but one reason I enjoy it is because it's, dancing is rather a beautiful thing. I just know almost nothing about it, you know? And they're in there, and I watch, and it's beautiful, and I realize in order, what they're trying to do is they know how to do certain stuff, and then it turns into something beautiful when they do it together, right? And if I'm going to dance with you, someone's going to have to take the lead. Someone's going to show off the other person. That's you, guy. You're not taking the lead for you. You're taking the lead for her. The beautiful one in the dance is the woman, Right? Your job is to make her beautiful when you dance. Am I right about this? I know I am. And I watch that stuff, and I see these guys, and, and yeah, they're, they're, they're taking the lead, but they're, in the, they're not in the limelight. She is. They're trying to help her to look beautiful. That's what it means to love your wife, to lead your wife. When you submit to your husband, it's not because he's better than you. It's because he's helping you shine. You see? If you're going to dance... Someone's got to take the lead, and someone's got to shine. Girls, you get to shine. Guys, you got to lead.
None of this other stuff about leadership and submission, it doesn't mean anything. This is what it means. That's why he says, husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. And, and, and he's trying to create a nurture and cherish her to present him to himself as a beautiful. You see, we're called to provide servant leadership and sacrificial love. That's the art. And the point is the beautiful music that you create. If you're not very skilled, you think ball step change, ball step change, or whatever those things are, right? I remember I used to have a music camp, ball step change, ball step change. You know, you know they don't, the, then they get good, they know what that means, and now it becomes something beautiful. Or if I were in the buffer, I should be talking about line dancing here, you know? You learn the moves so that you can create the music. You're practicing these moves, so you get good at them, so you create beautiful music together. That's the message in a nutshell. That's the Bible way. Wives, your job? Voluntary submission and sincere respect. Your husband's very weak. He needs to know you care about him. He needs to know you believe in him. That's why you don't want to nag him. You don't want to get in his way. You don't want to push him. You want to just respect him. Let him know you believe in him. He needs that. He's pretty weak. He needs that, all right? All right, and that's how you help him to be covenant in your leadership. Well, I have to quit because I'm basically, uh, basically out of time. All the way through this, the example that, Jesus, that Paul gives about this marriage is the example of Jesus laying down his life. So as we close our time together, let's think about Jesus as being our perfect leader as a man, our perfect husband as a wife. We submit to Jesus as Christ submits to the church, or Jesus, the church submits to Jesus. Marriage is an art. It's not a science. Marriage is a mystery. You can't know everything about it. And marriage is important. Give the best of yourself to that. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these beautiful words in Scripture. Thank you for reminding us of the beautiful music that we can create as followers of Jesus and as people of God. Thank you for your love for us. In Jesus' name.